Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Terrence Malick's 2011 film, The Tree of Life. This is a monumental and important and deeply personal film in my life. It's hard to describe what it's about because it's really about everything. The cosmos, childhood, death, life, nature, and loss. The film is anchored by its focus on one family in 1950s Texas that is later rocked by unimaginable loss, but added to this story is a collage of images that capture something as massive as the birth of the universe and something as small as a child taking his first steps. Malik takes us all the way back to the time of the dinosaurs and transports us to what eternity or heaven might look like. I consider this to be the greatest film of the 21st century so far. I make my case I also provide information on the making of the film, and I go deeply into everything about this movie, sharing my own raw emotions and what the film makes me remember, what it makes me think and feel. This film is part of my soul. That's the only way I can put it. There are spoilers in this episode, so I would suggest that you watch the film before listening to this episode. I would also recommend to you, if you've never seen the film, to maybe watch it twice first time you watch it, just let it wash over you. Don't try to put the pieces together. Don't necessarily try to make sense of everything. It's a very different viewing experience, I think. The first time you see it, it's just very different. Let it just sink in and then maybe watch it a second time. And I think that seeing it a second time will enrich your understanding of the way that the story is put together, the way images are related to each other. I think it's a very complex film. So I just wanted to give some advice if you've never seen it. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash her head in films. You could also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about her head in films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I won't go on any longer. Here is my deeply personal episode about Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. Before I get into my deeply personal and raw analysis and thoughts about this film, I just want to take a little bit of time to talk about why I chose this film, to talk about some of Malick's life, and also the making of the film, and then I will give you my full analysis of it with all my thoughts and feelings. For me, 
this is the greatest film of the 21st century so far. There were recently some lists that were created or people made these lists of the greatest films of the 21st century. I immediately knew the film that I would choose and that's The Tree of Life. It has to be. This film is monumental to me. It is a defining film in my life which you don't say often about every film that you watch. I certainly don't, but it is that kind of film for me where I see so much of myself reflected in it. It takes me to places that no other work of art takes me to, and it moves me emotionally. It makes me think. It makes me feel. It transports me. It immerses me. It absorbs me. It mesmerizes and stuns me. I mean, all of it. It haunts me. This film is in me. It's part of me. You can't say that about a lot of films, that they define your life. But for me, that's what this film does. I think it's a film that creates a new language, that challenges us as viewers. This film is like a reverie. It's like both a memory and a daydream. Maybe memories are daydreams or reveries, and they're also something that we feel reverence for, these things from the past. This film is poetry in the form of cinema. I feel that all of Malick's life and career were leading to this film. I feel that he put all of himself into it and many of his ideas. He has a background in philosophy and I think he put so much of that and so much of himself, so much of what he had learned, what he had seen, so much of life and the world into this film. I believe that Malick, like Michelangelo Antonioni with his films like La Ventura, Red Desert, Laclise, created a new language for film by doing several different things, and I'm going to talk about those things in a moment. I am not a film scholar, not a film historian or theorist. These are my thoughts and opinions and what I feel that this film did. I think that it takes film forward. I think it creates new ways of doing film. Not just that, it affects viewers. I think it changes our expectations of what a film can be. And I just don't think you can say about a lot of films that they change the language or create a new language or that they move us forward in innovative ways. And I feel like that's what the Tree of Life does. And I feel like there should maybe be a period before the Tree of Life and a period after it. I just think that it's a monumental, important film. I don't know if everybody agrees with me on that. Maybe some do, maybe some don't. Maybe smart people disagree with me. I don't know. I've watched a lot of films. I've watched thousands of films over the past decade that I've been a serious, hardcore cinephile. And for me, this film is on another level. It's up there for me with something like The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer. It is so important to me in that way. So the things that I think are very important about the film and that make it my favorite of the 21st century are, there are many things. One is the way this film seems to capture fragmented moments of life. These glittering fragments are gathered together to form a collage a kaleidoscope of life in all its facets. It's a fragmented film to me. It's made of these bits and pieces of life. These moments that are crystallized, that are captured and frozen, and then they are combined together. That's also what makes it poetic to me, is that that's 
partly what some poems do, is that they capture these moments of life. Moments that would normally be forgotten, thrown away, that would just pass you by, but they're captured in a poem or they're captured in this film. The lack of a narrative or plot or even continuity is also an important part of this film, but I like the way that it mimics our own consciousness and it mimics our own process of memory. I don't remember a narrative from my childhood. I don't remember a sequence of events. I remember bits and pieces and fragments and flashes of faces and random moments. I sometimes don't even see the faces. I'll have memories of being with my parents or being with kids from the neighborhood where I grew up. I don't remember their faces perfectly, but I remember the moments. And so for me, that lack of a narrative actually mimics life more. It mimics the mind and the way that we remember and the way that we compose or create our lives in our own mind and the way we think of the past. Scenes are cut together that seem to have no connection until you reflect on them or you think deeper about their associations. He includes both the ordinary and the epic, showing how our lives are both small and expansive at the same time. He takes as his subjects one regular family and also the origins of the universe. There are these massive themes and then there are these small little moments from the volcano to the butterfly. All of it is there, the entire spectrum of life. There are no limits to his vision. Another technique he uses is the voiceover that I think is very poetic. What the characters say feels like poetry, sounds like poetry. There is this voiceover throughout the film from the different characters, from Jack to Mrs. O'Brien to Mr. O'Brien even. And the voiceover seems to communicate the inner thoughts of the characters regardless of what is on the screen. To me, the Tree of Life is a deeply emotional and immersive experience, not just a film, an experience. I believe that Malick filmed the unfilmable and that he captured the essence of life with this masterful work of art. And it is a masterpiece in my opinion. And in the process of researching Malick and this film for this episode, I realized how deeply I love him and his work. I had not seen a lot of his films until now. I had seen The Tree of Life, Days of Heaven, and The New World. I still have more of his body of work to watch. But just those films alone have taken me to places and transported me and watching his films is always an intense experience for me. It was a joy to immerse myself in his worlds and in his way of creating cinema and his way of seeing life. Honestly, this is my religion. This is as close as I come to spirituality and to transcendence. Art is my gateway to wonder and awe and Malik is one of the defining directors for me and he gives me access to that through his films. That is why I wanted to talk about the Tree of Life and talk about his work. I believe that there's art that shows you parts of life you've not seen before, art that awakens you and makes you grateful to be alive and inspires you to be more present in your own life, and Malik does that for me. A lot of this episode is going to be about grief and loss and pain because I see those threads in the Tree of Life and because I wanted to talk about those things as a cathartic outlet because of what I'm feeling right now, which I'll talk about in a moment. But I don't want you to think that Malik's films make me sad or depress me. The complete opposite. 
He makes me grateful to be alive. It's like after I read a Virginia Woolf book or story, I notice the light. I notice the wind on my skin. All these things that are so ordinary and usually taken for granted and forgotten. By capturing small, ordinary moments of life, Terrence Malick makes them sacred and divine. He's saying through his films, this is worth treasuring. This is worth noticing. This is what life is made of. The trees and the butterflies and the streams and the light coming through the trees and the curtains blowing in the wind and a baby's first steps and holding a baby's foot in your hands and your mother kissing you goodnight and your father showing tenderness to you. All of that is worth treasuring and we should have reverence for it because it's sacred and it's beautiful. So while I talk a lot about pain and grief in this episode, what I want you to know is that when I watch Terrence Malick's films, even though he makes me feel those emotions and he brings things to the surface for me, the the process of watching his films is deeply consoling and comforting and gives me a sense of awe, helps me connect to the beauty of life. I want to make that really clear, even though this is an intense episode when I talk about the film. It was very powerful to immerse myself in this film through my research, and I watched the Criterion Collection. DVD edition of this film. It actually comes with three discs. One disc has the supplements and I watched all of them and I'll share some of what I discovered. And then one disc is the theatrical release of the film and then the other disc is uh, the extended cut of the film. There is an extended cut but I'm talking about the theatrical version. Watching it on the DVD it was just it was intense. There's something about watching a DVD. There's something about holding it. There's something about the experience of it. I can't even put it into words. I wonder if some of you can relate. Yes, I love streaming. I stream a lot. I'm completely dependent on streaming because I live in the rural South and I don't have an art house movie theater near me. Plus, I can't even, even if I did have one, I couldn't now that we have the, the COVID-19 pandemic right now. So I love streaming. It's not a knock against it. But I also love DVDs. Like, I had kind of forgotten how much I love them. I rarely buy them because I just don't have the money. I don't have a lot of storage either, but mainly I don't have the money. But when there is a film that means a lot to me and I want to have the DVD, that's when I'll purchase it. And I did decide to buy The Tree of Life when it was released by Criterion Collection a little while ago. And I'm really glad I did because it was such a powerful experience to like get off the internet and just watch the DVD and immerse myself in this film. I have a funny story (laughs) that I want to share. This film, I, when I first saw it, probably almost a decade ago when it first came out, I didn't realize how polarizing it was. I was instantly rapturous about it and enraptured by the film. A lot of people don't like it. It's polarizing. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Jonathan Glazer's film Birth. That's a very polarizing film as well. But one day I went into the living room where my mom was and (laughs) the tree of life was playing on our television. And I was like, oh wow, my mom is watching the tree of life. She's not a cinephile, (laughs) y'all. She's not. And of course, this is my favorite film. One of my favorite favorite films ever. And I I think I asked her about it. I was like, oh, you're watching the tree of life. And she was like, (laughs) she was like, yeah, this is a weird film. She said that about the Tree of Life. I didn't say anything. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So she wasn't watching it because she was enraptured by it. She was watching it 
maybe she just didn't feel like turning the channel or something. You don't know. It's a difficult film. It's a challenging film to some people who want that straightforward, coherent narrative. But I wonder if I love the film so much or I'm drawn to it because I love poetry and I love fragmented, plotless, elliptical type writing. I love writers like Clarice Lispector, Marguerite Duras come to mind, even Virginia Woolf with her stream of consciousness. So I wonder if maybe I'm just more accustomed to ambiguous art that is kind of different. I'm not saying that people who dislike the film don't have valid reasons and it's not a judgment but I do wonder if for some people it's just an uncomfortable film. It's they're not used to watching something like that. I know that some people find it pretentious. I've seen comment sections here and there. For me pretension is about sort of surfaces and shallowness. To me this film is not shallow. I think it goes into the depths of emotion. So I'm re-watching this film for the podcast on around the 14th anniversary of my father's death. He died in 2006 when I was 16 years old. He had had health issues, but his death was still very unexpected and shocking. He was 45 years old. He was quite young when he died, and this was a deeply traumatic experience for me. I've talked about it numerous times in various episodes, but I know sometimes I might have a new listener, and so I just want to make it clear that this episode is really about digging into that grief because I see that as one of the important aspects of this film. He died in 2006. My grandmother then died in 2007 and then my uncle died in 2009. So by the time I was almost 20 years old, I had gone to three funerals for three people who were in my life. It was a devastating experience. I have struggled with depression, really bad anxiety, agoraphobia, which means for me has manifested in difficulty leaving my home and going out and being in the world. It can be more intense at different times. I've gone through periods where it wasn't as bad and I was able to go to college and then sometimes it flares up. I struggle with those things even now, 14 years later. I struggle with physical health issues. I've been through a lot in my life. I just want to share that because that's where I'm coming from. When the anniversary comes of my dad's death, it's really devastating and hard for me. I often turn to cinema around this time to help me through it. And it really scares me that I've almost lived as long without my dad as I did with him because I was 16 when he died and we're already on the 14th anniversary and it's just heartbreaking to me. I think this is a film born of grief, of Terrence Malick's grief over the death of his brother. Autobiography is almost used as a bad word these days. I think about people who are called confessional or things like that, but all artists are inspired by their own lives and they use experiences as building blocks and they transform it into the mythic and the epic. I think great artists find the universal and they create art that lives beyond them and connects to other people. We all go through things. And some of us try to transform it and some of us can't. I think the great artists are able to do that. They're able to create art that breathes separate from them. So 
there are biographical elements in this film, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, like Mallet growing up in Texas, the death of his brother, but the film also has those universal qualities, taps into the cosmic. I do feel like Malik has reached into himself, and he's created something that connects with other people, and I think grief is part of that, of losing his brother. It's not, you know, chest-pounding grief. It's not like raw grief the way mine is. Is. It's a different type of grief, but it's there. I think it affected him, and I think he's put that into the film. What do we do with grief and with suffering? We can make art, we can create, we can communicate what that loss has done to us and our world. The thing about it is that grief connects us with every other human being, and in a way, it connects us to something primal and eternal even because death itself is primal and eternal and so grief is a central subject of this episode and it has to be for me if i had recorded this episode in a different month at a different time in my life maybe it wouldn't be so central but for me it is i'm not as interested in the religious imagery or the philosophical issues or questions of the film i'm interested in loss i'm interested in memory in childhood the relationship between children and their parents i'm interested in those subjects and those are the things i'll be exploring in the bible the tree of life is mentioned in Genesis, and it is the tree that Adam and Eve eat from. It's not clear if the same tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve ate the apple from. I tried to do research. It's not clear. They may be separate or they may not. But to me, the tree of life, it brings up a lot of things. It brings up the fall, the loss of paradise that happens, that can happen when someone dies. And I feel like the section of the children growing up and their child childhood is very much like an Eden, a paradise, a time of like perfection before the fall of the brother's death. But maybe the tree of life is also a symbol of rejuvenation, rebirth, the continuation of life, the tree that keeps blossoming and lives on. Because if you think about it, the way that trees are, they're always regenerating. They'll be bare during the winter time, but then in the spring, and it's spring as I record this episode, the trees come back to life and they're full of their blossoms and their color and their beauty. And so I think the tree of life could mean a lot of different things. And maybe for me, it's more of that theme of regeneration and going on and surviving. And maybe I see some of that in myself and maybe I don't. I think in a lot of ways I have been destroyed and I've lost strength. I don't have a lot of resilience. I struggle to cope with the world and with life, but I keep going and I keep enduring. At the end of the day, that's all I can do is try to survive. And trees, they survive. They have a very strong ability to keep going and to continue to keep living. And maybe that's what it means to me. In a way, this episode will be an act of mourning for me. And it will be an outlet and a release for me to talk about memories from my childhood, to talk about how much I've struggled 
with my father's death, what his death makes me think about and what it makes me feel, what this film brings to the surface for me through the way it looks at loss. But there will also be life in it too. And I will talk about life and childhood and all kinds of different things. So a little bit of background on Malik and the making of the film. Malik is a notoriously private person. Few images or videos exist of him. One of the few videos of him was caught by TMZ. Can you believe that? No lie. And it shows him with Benicio Del Toro. This was several years ago. There's also a lovely short clip on YouTube of Malik dancing. I love that one. People speak well of him from what I've read, but he has high expectations. I think he demands a lot of himself and the people around him. He has no interest in doing interviews, even for that Criterion Collection DVD. There was no visual participation of him, but oh, how I dream of a director's commentary by him. I think he prefers to let his work speak for him. And of course, his silence only enhances the mystery surrounding him. He didn't start out as a filmmaker. He actually went to Harvard, studied philosophy. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He taught at MIT at one point, and he translated some of the work of Martin Heidegger. All of this is according to a book called The Cinema of Terence Malick. Malick got into filmmaking when he attended a program at AFI, the American Film Institute, that was open to students who were not majoring in film, but were majoring in other subjects. According to the book Terence Malick, rehearsing the unexpected, quote, seminars were held by filmmakers like Harold Lloyd, King Vidor, George Stevens, William Wyler, Billy Wilder, Federico Fellini, and Ingmar Bergman, unquote. Malik was selected for the first class of this program that was ever taught. Paul Schrader was in the same class, along with Caleb Deschanel, a well-known cinematographer, and also the father of Zoe Deschanel. This class set him on the path of being a filmmaker, but up until The Tree of Life, Malik only made a few films. He made Badlands, Days of Heaven, and The New World, but since The Tree of Life, he's made much more of varying quality, according to critics, though I haven't seen any of them yet. To the Wonder, Night of Cups, Song to Song, Voyage of Time, and most recently, A Hidden Life. I'm about halfway through A Hidden Life right now. I love it so far, but I haven't finished it. He's been much more productive in the last decade than he was the previous decades. And I definitely look forward to seeing what he creates. As I said earlier, there are autobiographical elements in the film. Some of his youth was spent in Texas, and he did lose a brother, and he had a difficult relationship with his father. Peter Biskind wrote about the death of Malik's brother and his relationship with his family in general in a profile for Vanity Fair around the time The Thin Red Line came out. Oh, I I forgot to mention The Thin Red Line. He did Badlands, Days of Heaven, The Thin Red Line, and The New World before The Tree of Life. I apologize. In Vanity Fair, Peter Biskind wrote, quote, the Maliks were a family of secrets marked by tragedy. Terry was the oldest of three boys. Chris, the middle son, had been involved in a terrible automobile accident in which his wife was killed. Chris was badly burned. Larry, the youngest, went to Spain to study with the guitar virtuoso Segovia. Terry discovered in the summer of 1968 that Larry had broken his own hands, seemingly despondent over his lack of progress. Emil, concerned, went to Spain and returned with Larry's body. It appeared the young man had committed suicide. Like most relatives of those who take their own lives, Terry must have borne a heavy burden of irrational guilt. 
According to Michelle, the subject of Larry was never mentioned. Malik was worshipped by his family. He was devoted to his mother. For years, he wouldn't allow her to read the script of The Thin Red Line because of the profanity, but he had terrible fights with his father, often over trivial issues. Even at the age of 50, according to Michelle, he still argued with Emil over whether he should wear a tie to church. Another bone of contention was family photographs. Malik's father loved to take pictures, but it made Terry uncomfortable, unquote. So Emil was Terrence Malick's father and Michelle was Terrence Malick's ex-wife in that paragraph. So this film comes from a personal place, even as I think it transcends Malick's specific story, but I think it can touch anyone who watches it. Just a little bit of making of the film and background info. The Tree of Life was a project in the making for many years, and it took a long time to come to fruition. Brad Pitt was a producer, and originally was going to stay a producer. He was not supposed to be in the film, but Heath Ledger was supposed to play the role of the father, Mr. O'Brien, and when he backed out, Brad Pitt took that role. And as we know, Heath Ledger died in 2008. Over 10,000 auditions took place across Texas to find the three boys in the film. They eventually settled on Hunter McCracken as young Jack, Laramie Epler as the middle child R.L., and Ty Sheridan as Steve, the youngest. Ty Sheridan is the only one who is still involved in Hollywood and who appears in films. Jessica Chastain had an audition as well, and they decided on her. It was really fascinating watching the Criterion DVD and seeing her audition and he would just ask her to to do different things and improvise and Jessica Chastain really loved working with him. The film was shot in a town, a small town in Texas called Smithville. They were very welcoming to the crew. They had this entire neighborhood um, that was used and each house was used for different things. The actors had houses, the makeup and wardrobe people. Jessica Chastain described it like a bubble. The actors and crew only had to walk a few blocks to get on set. The cinematography is done by Emmanuel Lubeski. He's known as Chivo. Everybody calls him Chivo. He's actually won three Oscars for the films The Revenant, Birdman, and Gravity. He's worked with Terrence Malick since The New World. The cinematography is crucial in the film. Only natural light was used and also the steady cam was really essential. A small crew would film the scenes. It was usually just whatever actors were in the scene along with Chivo and the camera operator. Very small crew. They wanted to have an atmosphere of improvisation. They didn't want to have to set up lights and do this and do that. Always wanted to just be in the moment and it was definitely an environment of freedom that was fostered on the set. For instance, the scene in the film when Jessica Chastain sees a butterfly and it lands on her hand, that was totally unscripted. They filmed it as it happened. It's it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the film, I think. It's just this beautiful moment. I mean, I myself, sometimes I see butterflies in the backyard where I live and they're just beautiful and you, I can never get them to land on me. I can't touch them. But it's amazing that she was able to do that. And like lately, I've had this obsession with butterflies. I've gotten back into them. I used to really be into them when I was a little girl and now I've just I'm just so in love with them. I got really obsessed with Mariah Carey's album Butterfly. It was an album I loved when I was younger 
when it came out in the 90s. I was probably like eight years old. <laughs> I was really young. So I was listening to Mariah a lot and then I've just gotten into the butterflies again. Like I love the symbolism, you know, the caterpillar into the butterfly, the transformation, the regeneration of butterflies. And I don't know. So that scene, I don't talk about it in my episode analysis. I kind of forgot to, but I absolutely love that scene. There was a script and the actors knew about scenes each day, but it was loose. They'd have their wardrobe on and all that, and they knew what was going to happen, but things were still open-ended. Malik would give them a few pages of like stream of consciousness writing that he had done, and they'd read it, and that would kind of set the tone for the day. You had to be prepared to try things and to improvise and to be in the moment, and I do think it lends an authenticity to the film. It feels like a family. You can tell that they were spending time together on set. You feel like you're watching a real family and their day-to-day lives. Like you can feel the spontaneity and the improvisation. Sometimes they would just film the kids doing whatever. It wasn't scripted. They weren't telling them, go run through the sprinkler, go do this, go do that. They would just let the kids play and they would film it. In that way, it's like a, it's a fiction feature film shot like a documentary. It's unique in that way. Whatever's happening on screen feels like natural. And if you think about it, it's a risky way of making films. Unscripted life can be very boring. That's why even reality TV is scripted. And how do you know the butterfly is going to land on Jessica's hand? They don't know that. You have to have faith and trust that you'll make those discoveries in the moment, that you'll take whatever happens and be able to do something with it. I think part of Malik's genius is in facilitating and in environment where wondrous things naturally unfold in an artificial environment. He's like a midwife more than a director in some ways as I was doing my research and learning about him. He has to nurture that space. He has to choose the right actors who are open to that spontaneity like Jessica Chastain. He has to put them together and create the ingredients for all of it to come together somehow and he does that but it's not quite clear how he does that. And then he has to make sure that the right moments are captured. And then he has to take that footage and edit it in a certain way. And it's just kind of stunning everything he does, I think. But it all begins on set and what the actors are able to do, what the cinematographers are able to capture. And he has to create that environment. He has to facilitate that. All of them do. And in that way, he is a very collaborative director. He's not a dictator on set. He's not, I mean, to me, is he a genius? To me, is he a legend and an icon? Yeah. But he doesn't like walk around set like, yeah, I'm the big man. I have all the ideas. You're below me. What it sounds like to me is that it's a very collaborative environment. Everybody's working together. Everybody has their part. He listens to people. He trusts people and he's open to other people's ideas. Often he lets the actors create the characters and he asks them about the characters that they are playing. So he's not somebody who's like, I am the one with the answers and you will listen to me. He's open to other things. For those who were working on the film, like with the special effects and the cinematography and everything, the film was 
was split into four so-called realms and you'll see them in the film. There's the astrophysical, which is the cosmos scenes, the microbial, the natural, which is like the dinosaurs and the landscapes, like the volcanoes and the rivers. And then there's the contemporary, which is like the human story. Obviously, there were some special computer effects that were used like for the dinosaurs, but there was not as much as you would think. Many of the astrophysical scenes were created with real substances, for instance, like milk and water. And on weekends, a crew would get together and they would do all kinds of experiments and tanks using all kinds of different substances to create the astrophysical scenes. They used real photos from the Hubble telescope and they gave them a three-dimensional quality. So a lot of what you see is real materials and not computer generated, which I love. So you think that you're looking at something artificial, like the universe being born, but you're actually seeing something kind of naturalistic because they're using real substances and not something on a computer. There are two kinds of music in this film. There's Alexander Desplat's score that he composed for the most part before much of the film was even shot. And then there's the classical music chosen by Malik. And many of the pieces are requiems, which is why I say that I think grief is a big part of this film, is that many of the songs in it are requiems. They are things created to honor the dead, to memorialize the dead. And on the DVD edition of the film by Criterion Collection, Alex Ross is interviewed and he's a music critic for The New Yorker. And he talks about the role of the music in the film. And I did not realize that there were so many requiems until he mentioned it. He gave me so much insight into this film. He's also the one that talked about the grief in the film, but he talked about how it's not the grief that's like where it's new and painful and overwhelming. It's like grief from a distance where years have passed. And I kind of agree, even though when I'm talking about the film, it's I'm sort of injecting my own grief into how I talk about it. But in the film... It is, it's a grief that is not quite as intense that has passed. And so the requiems are very important in this film. There is John Tavner's Funeral Canticle, Big Knife Prisoner's Lacrimosa, and Hector Berlioz's Agnes Day. So it further connects to that theme of grief and the music is just stunning. I have listened to a playlist of the music for years. I was obsessed with the music after I first saw the film and then re-watching it. I've been listening to the music as well. So it's all just, I don't know, everything about this film comes together. I don't know how Malik did it, but now I'm going to talk about the film solely, talk about scenes and images and what it makes me feel, what it makes me think about, share some of my own memories, share some of my own struggles with this anniversary and thinking about my father and things that I'm going through. And so here is my analysis of the tree of life. Because of my profoundly emotional response and connection to this film, I wanted this episode to be a little bit different. And in a way, I want to be in dialogue with the film. I feel like when a lot of people watch The Tree of Life, it is the kind of film that brings to the surface your own memories 
in your own life. And I think that the film taps into some of those universal experiences. Because yes, we all have very different lives, very different ways of navigating the world, different experiences, of course. But I do think there are universal things that we do share. Grief would be one of them and loss would be one of them and having a childhood. We may all have different childhoods but we remember what it's like to be a child. We remember our parents. We remember people in our families when we were young. Things like that and I think we all have questions about the universe, our place in it, the meaning of life, all these really big issues or thoughts or questions that Malik is raising in the film. I don't know how I can just have a normal episode and talk to you about the film. I have to do something different. I have to do something more than that. And the way that I wanted to set this up was to go through the film chronologically. As I was watching it, I took notes. I was writing things down. I was writing down memories. I was writing down thoughts. And I want to give that to you. What I want to do is isolate scenes or images and then share with you what those images or those scenes make me feel, how they remind me of my own memories, how they affect me. In a way, I'm trying to be in this personal dialogue or interaction with the film. I do feel like this is more than a film. It takes film in a different direction or or at least the viewers of this film. It takes us in a different direction. I think we interact with it in a different way. Yes, it's this thing on a laptop top screen. That's what it was for me. I'm not in a movie theater watching it. To me, it almost jumps out of the laptop screen or whatever screen it's on. It is immersive. It's like there's no separation or distance between you and the film. I felt raw. I felt skinless as I watched this film. Like I completely entered this film. I watched it over several days because it was so emotionally potent and overwhelming for me that I had to watch it in phases. So I would watch half an hour, then an hour, and it was an experience to watch this film. It's almost akin to maybe when you go to a museum and look at a painting or you go to an art installation. That's what this film feels like to me. It feels like much more than just a film. Like I said, it's like there's no separation between me and the film when I watch it. And so as I talk about it, that's where I'm coming from is I felt completely immersed and absorbed into the world on the screen and what I was seeing. I felt overwhelmed by my own emotions and memories and that's what I'm trying to share with you. I'm not here to dissect this film. I'm not here to give you what I believe all the symbolism means or the religious meaning. That's for theologians. That's for philosophers. That's for film theorists. I am here to give you my raw, truthful, honest feelings and emotions and thoughts about this film. Not here to pick it apart or dissect it or give you some kind of bigger meaning to the film. This is what it means to me. This is my experience with this film. It has it has been years since I watched it. I first watched it in like 2011, 2012, around that time. I have not gone back to it until now, really, to give it this kind of sustained attention 
and I went through watching the Criterion Collection DVD. I watched all of the extras, and then I watched the film. It was deeply immersive, deeply emotional, and moving for me to do all of that. There is an extended cut of this film with uh, added scenes and things like that. I did not watch it. I have not watched it yet. I will eventually, because this is one of those rare films for me where I want to know everything about it. I want to read everything about it. I want to know everything about it. I pretty much did that. I pretty much learned everything about this film that I could. But all of that was in preparation for me to just talk about my own emotions and experience of it. So I am talking about the theatrical version of the film and I'm just gonna talk about it, tell you how I feel, and that's it. That's what this is gonna be. Now within a few minutes of watching the film, I was already crying. (laughs) It was already religious to me. And I do feel ridiculous using phrases like religious or spiritual or transcendent, but I find that that's the only language that I can use. And so those are the words I will use. And I think maybe to some people that's probably ridiculous or over the top or whatever, but it's very rare to encounter a film like this. I loved the film when I first saw it years ago and I love it still. And I think actually with this rewatch, it's even it's even stronger for me and I didn't realize how important this film was to me because it had just been so long. I usually say that my favorite film of all time is The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer. I think this might be tied at this point or number two to that. I I rarely have this kind of reaction to a film like rarely, where it just becomes absorbed into my body and soul. But I feel that with this film. And I was crying. The first word of this film is brother. That is the source of this film. It's where it sprang from, I believe, the death of Terrence Malick's brother. While the film has autobiographical elements, you obviously can't reduce it to that. But I do think that this film is a memorial to the brother. It is a work of of grief, a work of mourning. I don't think that can be denied. That is where that is where it springs from. That death is what sparked this film, and it's an important part of it. And at the beginning, the there's light that moves like a flame while there's darkness all around. The light displaces the darkness. I think that we're seeing the world being born. With the birth of the world, there's also the birth of these terrible contradictions of life. Light and dark, beauty and violence, existence and death. And that light that you see at the very beginning was inspired by the work of an artist named Thomas Wilfred, and it's called Lumia what he did. He was an artist working in the sort of early 20th century or the mid 20th century. He's rarely talked about. He was actually in an exhibition with Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, some of my own favorite artists. I had never heard of him until I was doing research for the film. And with the Lumia, he would create these machines or these boxes where he was able to create the effect of light. He used like light bulbs and glass plates and different things like that to create like light art. I don't know how to describe it. You'll have to research it for yourself to totally understand it. But he created like light compositions instead of working with painting or marble, like with a sculpture, his material itself was light and he created these works and they look a lot like this 
thing that we see in, at the beginning of the Tree of Life, of the light in the darkness, the light moving. Malick was inspired by Thomas Wilfred. Now that I've learned about him, I'm going to definitely research more of his art. And I'm so fascinated by what he did with light. And it's so strange to me how he's been almost completely forgotten in a lot of ways. We see Mrs. O'Brien as a little girl. Her life before her children and her husband. That's what we're seeing. And this scene made me think about how I often think about my parents and who they were before me. And sometimes I wish that I could go back in time and, and observe them invisibly. I wonder about my father when he was a boy or even my age now, 30. I would like to know his dreams and his memories, but they are gone now. They went to the grave with him. And as I talk about this film, in a lot of ways, just as I think the film is a kind of memorial to Terrence Malick's brother, in a way, I want this episode to be a memorial to my own father. As I said, he died in 2006 when I was 16 years old, and I am recording this episode in the month that he died on the anniversary, the 14th anniversary of his death, and I have been in a lot of pain about it and struggling with it. And watching this film, when I'm also going through that grief and that mourning, has been really powerful. There is a solace about this film. There's something about it that does console me, but at the same time, it brings back all of these painful memories and makes me think about him. I have been thinking about him the whole time that I've been watching the film and researching it. You know, he is always there in my mind. He He's in my memories. And I'll never escape that and get away from it. And the pain is always raw around this anniversary. In a way, what I want this episode to be is a memorial to him. And maybe through talking about this film, I can work through some of my own grief. I know it's been 14 years, but I would argue that time doesn't make a lot of difference when it comes to losing somebody that you deeply love. Maybe if it's a distant relative that you didn't know that well, the shock of them dying will wear off. Or maybe it's somebody you knew in your past and you do feel shaken by it. But when it's somebody who is an intricate part of your life, who you saw every day for years and years and years, who you had a very intense deep connection with. I don't care how many years pass. I don't care. He was my father. There is no replacement. There is no substitute. There is no getting past it. He was much more of a best friend to me than just a father. We had a wonderful relationship, a close relationship, a loving relationship. Nothing like Jack's relationship with his father in this film. I don't even recognize that kind of relationship with a father because that's not what I had. And I'm grateful that I didn't have that. And it was not just his death. Of course, that was devastating. It was everything that came after it as well. It was the destruction of my life, the destruction of myself, what it brought into being. I was never the same after he died. And I have been grappling with his death all these years because I guess I want to understand how this catastrophic thing happened. I just can't get away from it. I can't get out of it because it was so traumatic that I was, I, I don't feel like a person anymore. 
Like, I just feel like I was completely destroyed. And I don't know what version of me continues to go on. I mean, I do feel like some kind of ghost in my own life. I do feel like I'm not really here because it took something so fundamental from me. It took this person that I loved and I couldn't understand it, what I saw. I couldn't understand this person who was living and breathing and then he wasn't and I couldn't understand his dead body in front of me and I couldn't understand what this was and what the world had become and I still can't come to terms with it and so I just walk around in a kind of daze like what am I supposed to do this this person is not here anymore and where are they where is he? What has become of him? What is he? And I can't find him and I can't talk to him and I can't touch him and I can't. What is this? It blew my mind apart. I don't think we talk about it enough. And I feel like Terrence, like I know I should say Malik, but sometimes I want to use his first name Terrence like we're friends or something. Like his his really good friends call him Terry, but I'm like, I shouldn't call him Terry, right? But Malik, I feel like even though I think this is a uh, celebratory film in some ways of life, I don't know. I feel like he touches some of the incomprehensibility of life uh, and of death of like, this is so massive. This is so much bigger than you. How do you make sense of it? You feel the grief of Mrs. O'Brien. I'll talk about that when I get to it. But it's like, I don't know. I think I'm doing this episode and trying to talk about this film. I mean, I'm talking about the film, but I'm also talking about me. I'm talking about like what I feel. And um, this film brings up so many emotions for me, but it's like, I can't, I can't get past the grief. And I know other people do. I know that most people do. And I'm just here 14 years later. (laughs) And it's like, not a lot has changed. Why am I like this? And I don't know and I can't answer it. But it just, it, and it's not even accurate. I don't know to say it shook me or it, it was beyond that, right? Like it just annihilated me. I've slowly had to rebuild myself and I haven't been doing a good job. You know, I've just been taking these bits and pieces and putting them together and I'm like, I'm not a full person. I don't feel like a whole person. I'm just unfinished in a lot of ways and I can't I can't put it all back together you know and I think I've just had to accept that it's never gonna make sense what happened and I don't think I search for sense I don't think I search for that anymore but I do think that this film looks at grief but it looks at it and I think in a much more hopeful way than probably I do (laughs) What happens when you're just annihilated by something and you never come back from it? But you know what? I wonder if I see that in Jack, maybe? Jack seems alienated. Older Jack, I mean, the one played by Sean Penn. Older Jack seems really disconnected from people. He seems really disconnected from the world. He seems deeply affected by his brother's death. And, um, you know, he lights that candle. To me, this film feels like just a day of memory and mourning for him. I feel like this is Jack's consciousness in a way of his memories and thinking back on his life and thinking about his brother. So I do think that the film is about grief and mourning, like really. And I think that's why I react to it in the way that I do. I would say that Jack is not at peace with what has happened. I don't think he is at peace about his brother's death. I don't think that Jack has 
the religious faith that his mother had. He doesn't have that grace. He doesn't have that that comfort that I think she was probably able to find through religion. There's something darker about Jack and maybe I see myself in that he just seems uncomfortable and like he's searching he's searching for something and he may not know what he's searching for and I feel a similar way where I do feel like I am searching and I don't know what exactly I am searching for or what if it can even be found I don't know it just when I lost my dad it was just what is this what is this? I just still remember those emotions. Being 16 years old and so alone in the world. The world was scary now and hostile and I mean no wonder. No wonder I started to deal with depression and I had panic attacks and I couldn't leave the house and I had agoraphobia for a while and I still struggle with all of that and no wonder. It just broke something inside me. It broke all of me and I am not a complete person. I'm not. And the only way that I find any kind of comfort is through art, through music and books and, you know, films. And I'm thankful for my mom too. I wouldn't have survived without her. She's the only person I had in the world. She's still the only person I have in the world. Love is an important means of survival as well. And when I think about the people who end up dying or through suicide or I don't know I just I wonder sometimes why that wasn't me I I don't know because I feel like that could have been me that everything I've been through and the way that I struggle with it the only things that I think keep me going are that love for my mom and having art and so a film like this it helps me. There's something cathartic about it, I think, to watch this film. And I want this episode to reflect that, obviously, of like how it affects me and what it makes me feel. A big theme in this film is the the nature versus grace. And it comes, it's throughout the film, it's sort of a philosophical aspect of it. I won't pretend to understand everything about it or to know the philosophical foundations of it, but I think it's an interesting aspect of the film. In the voiceover, Jessica says, quote, The nuns taught us there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. They taught us that no one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. I will be true to you whatever comes, unquote. Obviously in the film, the mother, Mrs. O'Brien, is grace and the father, Mr. O'Brien, is nature. And there is that conflict throughout the film. There is the conflict inside of Jack between these two very different, almost opposite ways of existing in the world, right? Grace is selfless and altruistic and nurturing and compassionate, and nature is selfish and violent and aggressive and only thinks about its own desires and its own wants. And there's a lot of that in the father throughout the film. And immediately that is set up in the film, that conflict. There's a scene of Jessica. I keep saying Jessica, but I'll say Mrs. O'Brien, sorry. Mrs. O'Brien is swinging in the backyard 
And I loved this image because I remember when my dad would take me to the park and I'd get on the swings. And we even had a swing set in our backyard for a long time where me and him would, would hang out and he'd play with me and, you know, push me on the swing. We actually kept that swing set for a really long time. And even when I was older and I couldn't get on it, obviously, as an adult, it was really hard to let it go. It was such a symbol of my innocence and my youth. And Mrs. O'Brien is kind of childlike in this film, or maybe that isn't the right word. She isn't separate from her children. She gets on their level and she plays outside with them. She does the things that they do. They chase her and they run around a lot. She isn't above them or distant from them the way that Mr. O'Brien is. She's always engaging with them. And Jessica Chastain, it was really important for her to cultivate a relationship with the children. And she did that uh, well before the film started so that there would be that really deep connection and relationship between them. There's obviously a focus on trees in this film. The O'Briens have trees in their yard, for instance. I loved trees as a child. I didn't climb them or anything, but I was always entranced by them. We had uh, dogwood trees growing in our front yard. We had two of them. And this was in my childhood home. I don't live there anymore. I moved a few years ago and my childhood home was in North Carolina. I grew up in a small town there and now I live in another state and I actually lost that house. And it was a really painful experience. It has been painful for me to deal with it because that was the house where I grew up and it was where all my memories of my father were and you know I don't talk about it a lot it hurts really bad when I think about that house and you know I think about the hallways and I think about can still see that house in my mind when I can see my dad there and I can see us playing in the front yard or the backyard I can see him mowing the yard I can see you know when you take your kids height you know and that you have those you know those pin marks on the wood. We had that in my bedroom. I just think about the surfaces that he touched and that they could still have his fingerprints on them. And I'll never have his fingerprints. Like, I just think about that sometimes when someone dies. Like, we don't have their physical matter. Like, we don't have, like, their DNA or their hair or their skin cells or... And it's like, I miss that physical connection to him of like his skin and his hair and his face and his smile and it's it's hard and it's there's something powerful about sharing a space with somebody and then to leave that space and to leave all those memories and everything that that space was and the life that you made there and all the things you remember and and then you just have to leave and you have to let it go and it just lives in your memories but i remember um you know the dogwood trees in our yard and i was always amazed when they would bloom white in the spring and they'd get so heavy with those blossoms I used to play in the woods with friends when I was very little. I loved the scent of the pine trees and how the needles left sap on my hands. I always wished I could name the trees and know what they were. I remember buying this big picture book about trees. (laughs) This was when I was growing up. I'd watch the wind rock them, the trees. I loved how the leaves would tremble. I remember how after my dad died, we had this tree that started growing through our back deck and it got quite big. We had to get a family member, a relative to remove it. And I still remember the morning that he came and I could hear the saw cutting the tree down and it hurt 
to hear that sound and to know that that tree would disappear. I don't know why, but I felt a kinship with trees and forests. I was always really fascinated by the myth about Daphne and how she turns into a tree. And that always enchanted me, the idea of turning into a tree. There's a voiceover where where Mrs. O'Brien says, I will be true to you no matter what comes. And then it cuts to the scene where, years later, the film jumps in time. It goes from childhood to when they're older. But this is when she receives the news that one of her sons, R.L., 19 years old at the time, has died. So most of the film takes place during the childhood of the children when they're living in Texas and they're living in that one house. But then there's a few scenes where... We're in a different house and we're at a different time. It's probably the 1960s. Whereas the, when they are in Texas at that house and in the childhood, that's more the 1950s. And this definitely looks like something from the 1960s. She receives this telegram. You don't really know in the moment what is going on, but she has just found out that her son has died. There's a pause in her reaction. And she reads the words, but she doesn't immediately cry. And then we hear a scream and it cuts to Mr. O'Brien at an airport and he's being told of R.L.'s death as well. And we see how he almost drops to his knees at one point. And I think that it's always very difficult in film to show this moment. This is a moment of grief. This is a scene of grief. This is, I don't even know how to describe moments like this. This is the kind of scene where somebody's life changes forever. This is like a bomb going off, this type of scene when someone finds out that a child has died, their child, or a parent has died, or somebody they love is gone. I think a lot about during this COVID-19 pandemic, so many people are getting that news. So many people are being told their loved ones is dead, and they can't even go touch the body. They can't even be present with the person that they love as they are dying. They can't hold their hand. They can't be there with them. I was not there when my father passed away. It haunts me in a way that I was not there. And I know a lot of us are not always there. We don't all get the chance to hold the hand of our loved one as they leave this world. But I wish I could have been there. And I wish he could have known that he was loved and safe. And it's like, I wish I could go back and be there somehow, but it wasn't possible. It's so cruel. It's so cruel that you can't be there. I've been inside that moment of grief. The very first moment of it, when you first get the news, there's nothing like it. There never has been, and there never will be a language for that experience. You're not in your body, or maybe you're too inside your body. You're no longer in control of your body. It's like a spasm goes through you. You're severed from everything around you. And I remember the moment my mother and I were told that my father was dead. We were together. We arrived at the hospital and we were taken into this small room, this white room with chairs. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what to expect or what was going on. The doctor came in and she was saying, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That's all I remember. And I clearly remember my mother's scream, like the scream of the mother, Mrs. O'Brien, in this film. I did not scream or cry at first. I was completely numb and outside myself. I can't really put it into words what I felt. It was impossible 
for him to die. When I was a small girl, I remember I'd had a dream of him dying one time, but he was alive and I rushed to my parents' bedroom and I found my father and I cried in his arms. I was so thankful that he was alive and I was just there shivering from the terror of even imagining his death. No, it was impossible and it was catastrophic. It couldn't happen, but it did happen. This news of his death was physical. I cannot speak it. We think of the emotion of grief, the mental anguish of it. We don't talk about what it does to the body, how out of control we are, how the pain is in our heart and our bones. We feel like we can't walk. It's like an instant debilitation. How do you stand? How do you speak? It's like after that moment, you have to relearn how to live and how to function. It's why people have heart attacks and strokes and other physical issues. After suffering devastating loss, I think of Debbie Reynolds when she heard that her daughter had died. She had a massive stroke and she died as well, only within a few days of Carrie's death. We had to go to the room where his dead body was laying. After that, we had to drive home, and I remember that drive and the silence of it, and the sun streaming through the trees, and the new knowledge of death that I had. He was dead, and nothing had changed externally in the world. The streetlights still worked, and there were children playing in front yards. Only our internal world was shattered. The rest of my life began in that moment. My life had split in two in that moment. I do believe that I metaphorically, spiritually, and emotionally died in that moment. I was changed and I've been crawling ever since. I've been drowning. Grief breaks apart the world. For me, the only form I've been able to find is the fragment. And maybe that's the form that Malik needs too. Grief is not coherent and it's not linear. If you want to communicate the depth of this experience, you need new forms. You need the fragment. You need the nonlinear, the non-narrative. You need to access something pure and mysterious. And Malik does that through the style of the film. From the mosaic effect, the collage I would maybe call it more of a collage effect to the music of the film, to the voiceovers that are done by the actors. All of it he's putting together to create this portrait of a family, both before and after loss. But the the loss to me is central because that's why I think Jack is thinking back about his childhood. It's why he has these intense memories. It's because his childhood was the only time when it was the time before his brother died. It was the time before the shattering. I think that's what makes it so powerful. It's It's only in retrospect that you realize what was coming and you realize that this time in your life was almost perfect or a kind of paradise or something because you didn't know the horror that was coming. When everything is shattered, you rebuild with all the pieces that are left and they can't be put back together perfectly. You gather together the shards, the splinters, and you make art with that, with what you have. Narrative is not natural necessarily. I know we like narrative. We like things where, you know, there's cause and effect and everything makes sense. Life doesn't always lay itself out in a perfect linear fashion. Yes, time is linear. It goes forward. We cannot go back. But the way we experience life is not. We impose a narrative on the chaos of our everyday living in which very little makes sense. And that's how this film operates, I think. And you either feel it and respond to it or you don't. 
it's intuitive when you watch the film to understand how the pieces fit together, how the shards are connected with each other. You're either on the frequency of the film or you're not. And I think you have to be open to it as well. Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien are walking down the street together and she's crying. I just want to die and be with him, she says. There is no way back to the dead. I never understood the meaning of forever until he died. For me, it doesn't get easier with time. I think I was more resilient in the beginning, maybe for the first year, because I had to finish high school and I had to just get through it. But all the years since his death have been more and more painful because that grief accumulates. You age, you lose more, you struggle. And I think you understand that he's not coming back, that you'll never see him or know him again. You live without him day after day and year after year without end. And you feel the endlessness of it. That's what I feel, the endlessness. It's interesting how the film engages with eternity and time. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like, like this is just my one pain, my one tragedy. And in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really mean anything, does it? I mean, compared to like, billions of years and the universe and dinosaurs and all these massive things but to me it's everything this one loss I mean what is one loss right people lose people every day it it is so common it is so normal right but when it's you and it's your life it's different it's like how do you make sense of it it doesn't necessarily help me to think about bigger things. I mean, yeah, my life is nothing compared to all of that, but it doesn't change the suffering. At one point, Mr. O'Brien is talking about how he criticized R.L. and he made him feel ashamed. And it got me wondering if we're supposed to believe that R.L. committed suicide. I wonder if we're supposed to interpret it that way. It's not clear why R.L. dies. I, I know that Malik's brother did commit suicide. So it was kind of subtle. So the first first 10 minutes of the film are dedicated to this grief and this loss and I think it sets the tone for the rest of the film. I mean Malik could have easily put this at the end of the film after we've seen the boys and their childhood and oh and then RL dies but he didn't do that. It comes at the beginning because I think that that loss is very important to the film. It gives the rest of the film the emotional resonance of oh so when we look at this little boy and he's playing around and he's playing his guitar and he's smiling and he's doing this and that we're supposed to know that he died years later that he died young and most likely killed himself and at the end when there's the reunion that that is so powerful because mrs o'brien lost one of her children and so the grief is what anchors the film for me it gives it the emotion without it i don't know if it would be the same because then it would just kind of be oh some boys growing up in texas in the 50s and i'm not saying that doesn't matter but it's it's the grief it's the death that i think gives it for me at least the power is that losing somebody at when you shouldn't have losing them at an early age I mean my father was very young he was only 45 he was young I was young when I lost him when things like that happen at an early age in your life they determine the rest of your life in the course of it and they will they haunt you they haunt me you know it haunts me it will never not haunt me but that the first 10 minutes of the film are, are crucial and so we go from this grief into other areas of the film we see the abstract lighting 
again, the Lumia. That's what I'm calling it is the Lumia by Thomas Wilfred. Then we see city scenes, cars on roadways, large buildings. We see Sean Penn who's playing older Jack. He's in his modern contemporary life. He lives in this very sterile home. It's completely different from what he grew up in. Very sleek and modern. I see the child I was the voiceover says, and we see him younger with his brothers playing in the front yard. His brother R.L., and who he describes as true and kind. I personally got the sense that the day that we're seeing Sean Penn and older Jack is possibly the anniversary of R.L.'s death because he lights this candle. Maybe the voiceover is him thinking in his mind about R.L. and his childhood And that's very powerful to me. I do think that some of this is sparked by the anniversary of the death. That's how I interpret it. And anniversaries, as I said, I'm going through my own death anniversary with my father. It can be very powerful. And every year my body remembers this date almost. And I kind of lose my mind for a month. Honestly, I feel very raw. I feel like I'm in a fog, a daze for a lot of the month. I think about everything. I obsess over the past. I'm always haunted by the past. And at different points in this section, we see like the salt flats at one point. We see Sean Penn, older Jack. I'll just call him older Jack. Wandering in the desert. Where is he? Is this real? Is this imagined? Is this a daydream? What is this? We don't know. It doesn't make any sense really until the end when at the end we get the reunion on the beach and in the in some of those places that show up at the beginning of the film. I think there's certainly an internal sense and rhythm in this film. I think some people watch it and they're like, what is going on? None of this makes sense. It looks random. It's not random. And throughout my discussion, I'm going to tell you how things to me connect in different ways there is there is a sense to it and there is a way that the images are interconnected it's not random it's just not (laughs) there's a reason everything is chosen in the film so we see at the beginning the desert part and then of course that comes back at the end the the rhythm of the film is something that you have to surrender to and it's sort of internal meaning of the way that the images are put together the editing is very fluid and dynamic and very associative associative things are associated with each other like free association almost and there is meaning there there's an internal meaning inside the film I think it's almost like this is one day in one man's life thinking back on the past and that reminded me of Clarissa and Mrs. Dalloway the book by Virginia Woolf that is about one day in the life of a woman she's planning a party but she's also thinking about the past and about her life And I feel like that's part of this film because it feels to me like we're seeing older Jack in one day of his life. That's what it felt like to me. You know, he wakes up and that is his day. He's at work. He's walking around work. And it felt to me like we were kind of in his mind, in his dreams, in his memories or something. I could be wrong. I don't know. I think the film 
is open to interpretation. And it kind of felt like all this was happening just in one day of his life. And with the the candle that he lights at the beginning. And then we, I think we see that candle near the end of the film as well. And so it just feels like it's all happening in one day, at least for older Jack. It's like this one day that is also connected to all the other days that this person has lived. One day can contain our entire lives, just like one film can contain all of life in it. That's how I feel. And this film absorbs me. It obsesses me. As I was watching it, my own life both disappeared and magnified right in front of me. I got lost in the poetry of the film but it, then it also takes me into my own experiences and my own feelings. That's what's really powerful about it. You can tell older Jack is unhappy in his life. I'm not usually a fan of Sean Penn. I, I don't love him personally, but I do think that he worked for this role because he kind of had that dark, brooding sort of anguished thing about his face. He looks like he's in pain. I think he's haunted by his brother in the past. He does not seem to be religious like Mrs. O'Brien. I don't get any of that from older Jack. How did she bear it? Older Jack asks in the voiceover. And how do any of us bear it? How do any of us bear loss? Mother, he says, and that word really hangs in the air. Mother, our source, our first home in the womb. He's very deeply connected to his mother. You can tell that his love for her is intense. I don't think Malik is necessarily trying to make sense in this film. I think he's trying to make mystery and I think that's what he's creating and I think that's what you enter. You enter that mystery when you watch this film. There's this wonderful footage of a murmuration of starlings. I've always been fascinated by these formations of these birds, the way they move together as one dark mass in the sky. I've seen some in real life uh, sort of around my house. Probably not exactly the same, but I've seen like groups of birds sort of moving in unison. Um, It's not as spectacular as what you see in this film, but I think when you see something like that in real life, it's just stunning. Mrs. O'Brien, Lord, why? Where were you? She says, that's when we see that abstract Lumia light again. And of course, all of these um, answer, all of these questions are asked throughout the film, but there is no answer. And yet the silence doesn't upset her or even Malik. That's what's so interesting about the film is that it is about grief or loss, but it's not a sad film necessarily. It's an emotional film. It's an overwhelming film, but it's not sad. This is not the depressive, godless world of like Ingmar Bergman. Malik is not lingering on God's silence. I don't even think he's interested in God's silence. Perhaps he finds God's presence in the beauty that the camera captures. He finds the sanctity of being alive. I've never raged at God. I've never saw a point to it. I've never asked why. I've never yelled, why did you do this to me? Oh, man in the bearded man in the sky. I never saw a point to it because I'm an atheist and I don't believe that there is anything out there to blame. I don't believe an entity stole my father away from me. There is no force for me to direct my rage at. There's nothing for me to fight against. But it's just interesting to me that throughout the film, the characters ask these questions. The characters never get an answer to any of the questions, but the film is not necessarily angry about that. The silence of God is there. 
it is very apparent, but it's not depressing the way it might be in some other films. Because I think that Malik, I don't even want to displace it to Malik, but maybe the characters in the film find solace or consolation in being alive, in their memories, in life, in because the film captures the beauty of life. It captures a lot of things. It's a complex film. It's not just trees and butterflies and the ocean. It's also violence in the home and an aggressive father and a violent father at times and loss and pain and there's all of it in there. But I think the current throughout the film is life is worth living. Life is worth cherishing. I think that is a big part of the film. At this point, the film then transitions into the creation of the universe, the astrophysical realm of the film. In a spiritual sense, the creation of the universe is the beginning of God, if you believe in that. God is creating this, according to religious people, Christians. So God is... God would be creating this and Mrs. O'Brien would be speaking to him in her voiceover and he created all of this and so that means he created death too. Why? She asks, quote, did you know, unquote. And I took that as, was this preordained to happen, the death of R.L.? I think she's asking that and then she's asking, why would you choose for that to happen to me? I mean, that's implicit in a question like that. Did you know? Did you know, is what she's asking. Did you know that you would take my son from me? And why would you do that? Why would you plan that? From her perspective, how was this allowed? Why would you take my son? I'm reminded of a performance I once saw by Tori Amos online. It was a live performance that she did shortly after one of her miscarriages in the 1990s. She had quite a few before she was able to finally have her daughter, Natasha. She went through a lot of pain with it, and she put a lot of that pain into her album from the Choir Girl Hotel, which is one of my favorite albums by her. And she's doing this song in a live setting. It was the song IE. And during this song, she has this improv. She does that a lot in her music, where she'll have an improv in the song. Honestly, she's one of the few people that when she does songs live, she actually transforms them. And there are live versions of her songs that I sometimes prefer over the studio versions. But in this song, she seems to be speaking to God at one point, and she's added this in for the live performance. And she's asking why he took her little girl. And then she just wails why at the end of it. That's it. She just wails the word why. It's gut-wrenching. It's like unlike anything I've seen before. It's a woman's grief just right there in front of you. That's what this creation of the universe scene makes me think about. If an entity created all of this, why would it create death? Why would it create suffering? What are we to you? Mrs. O'Brien says. What are we to you? So we are right in the beginning of the world, of the universe, the galaxy, I guess, in the vapor and the light, the creation of the stars and the planets. So the film transitions from the human to the cosmic. But the thing is, is that we are in the cosmic and the cosmic is in us. We're not separate. We're made of those first stars. We're made of the same elements. 
right? So how can you not think about your own place in the universe when you watch this? I mean, I'm reminded of the wonderful Joni Mitchell song, Woodstock. It's one of my favorite Joni Mitchell songs. And I was actually listening to it during the process of watching this film. And that line, we are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. We are stardust, she says. That's always stayed with me. The thing about nature and the cosmos is that they're beyond the human. They happen whether we're there or not. I've always been struck by that, by a world that pre-existed us, that existed before us like the dinosaurs. We were not here to witness them or to see them. When you think of the universe and the concept of billions of years, it's unfathomable how much of this world was already here before us and how it will go on without us. Nature doesn't care. A volcano doesn't care if there's a community beneath it. A tornado doesn't care what houses it destroys. The earthquake and the tsunami and all of it have no consciousness, no concern for our lives. And that is the thing as human beings that we we are always grappling with is that when disastrous catastrophic things happen to us whether it is a a disaster of nature like a volcano or a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane or it's just the death of your child or the death of someone you love we grapple with what is the meaning of this why would this happen and i'm very frustrated by people who say it was meant to be or it happened for a reason and i know that people say it from a misguided place, right? I know that they say it because they're religious and they really believe that, but I find it so insulting and so offensive for somebody to come to me and say that my father died for a reason or that my father had to die. It's unspeakably cruel to say that to another human being, that everything you're going through, if you went through genocide, if you were raped, if you lost somebody you loved, it had to happen. There was a reason for it. Well, if there was a reason for it, I don't want to know. And I certainly don't want to know the entity that gave it a reason. And I've always felt that way, that if there was a God, I'm not sure I'd want to know know him because there's no reason for that kind of pain and suffering and we should be doing all we can on this earth to reduce suffering we should not be finding ways to justify it we cry to you my soul my son mrs o'brien says and the camera glides above a volcano it's interesting to me that these cosmic and natural scenes are shown with voiceovers and the voiceovers are so full of longing and questioning asking god where he was we see the vastness of the universe and the world while we hear one person asking why they lost their child what is our life next to a volcano or to the universe we're so small and we can't understand why we are here. The film then goes into the microbial realm with the microbes and the cells. It's such a strange world with these strange shapes. I don't have much to say about that part of the film because I'm not a scientist or something. Then we go into the dinosaur scenes, which are really part of like the natural realm and part of nature. Let's just put it out there. This is a controversial part of the film. There are a lot of people who don't understand it. <laughs> They're like, why are the dinosaurs here? I've just noticed it. I've just noticed that it's controversial. People don't like it. I have no issue with the dinosaur scenes. People just lose their mind over it. If you're going to show the history of Earth, then you're going to have to include them because they did exist. It's very naturalistic. 
That's something I like about it. This is not Jurassic Park. The focal point is not the dinosaur necessarily. It's the environment that the dinosaur happens to exist in and to be part of. And that was very, um, that was done on purpose. The cinematographers, they went out and they captured a lot of natural footage in forests and different places. And then the dinosaurs were inserted into that footage. They wanted to make it as natural as possible. At one point, a a dinosaur is injured and it's laying by a stream. And this larger dinosaur comes up to it, puts its foot on the injured one's face, seems about to kill it but stops. It's a moment of mercy. And like I said, people have lost their minds over it, saying it wouldn't have happened. It's not believable. How how do these people know that? There are people, for instance, who have uh, been attacked by wild animals, but were not killed. What I mean by that is that the, the tiger or the bear or the cougar could have torn these people apart, could have ate them. I've heard about alligator attacks where the animal comes up and bites them and things like that. And they could have finished them off. They could have made it so that the person didn't live, but for whatever reason they didn't. Or people who have been out and they saw a grizzly bear and the bear came up to them and almost attacked them but didn't. Well, why didn't the bear attack them? It got distracted. It wasn't interested for whatever reason. So what I'm saying is that it is possible that the dinosaur, and I can't believe I'm talking about this, but I, this is what I think. The dinosaur, yes, it put his foot on the other dinosaur's face or neck, and then it just didn't kill it. And it was a moment of mercy. And who is anyone to say that it couldn't have happened? None of us were there during the dinosaur times. Animals attack other animals. They attack people and leave them alone, you know, and, and we don't, and we don't know why they didn't go through with killing the person or the other animal could have been a distraction maybe they got bored maybe they just didn't care right it's there's no rhyme or reason to it it doesn't always make sense so it is possible that the dinosaur would do this it's just a moment of mercy in the film and it's a way of saying that this could have happened and it does happen in nature there are moments like this the scenes in this film i mean can you even call them scenes they're more like flickers of life and memory the scenes in this film feel like your own memories they really do become part of you and i feel like i overuse that phrase this film is part of me right it's cliche i know but i'm not sure how else to describe it. Maybe some films are already in us even before we see them and poems and songs and books too. We could have created them ourselves but somebody else happened to. There are so many surreal images in the film in particular the the room that's underwater and we see a little boy swim out of the room through a door and then there's another one right after that where there's this woman in a wedding dress and she's suspended in water. What does that mean? (laughs) Like does it matter what it means? For me I can sit with the not knowing that is at the heart of this film. I can sit with the mystery of it and that's something that I love about art is how it allows us to access what is outside the everyday and what is outside of sense. This is not the kind of film that you would necessarily be used to seeing. This is not a Transformers film. This is not a big blockbuster film. It is a film that is 
that has to be felt, that you have to be open to. I guess I just am. It's not a judgment on people who dislike the film. Different things work for different people, but there are some people who would just not even give a film like this a chance, and that kind of makes me sad. Like, at least have your experience with it. Ignore the critics and just see what you think about it. And if you still don't like it, okay, but at least you gave it a shot. I just think it has a lot of quality to it. I love it. So we've gone through the cosmic, the microbial, a lot of the nature stuff already. And then we're back to the human, to what I think they called the contemporary realm. And we see Mrs. O'Brien in a white room giving birth. Mr. O'Brien cups the baby's foot with his hand. You see that image on most of the posters for this film. And right before she gives birth, There is a flash of an image. It's very quick. I did not catch it the first time I saw the film. I saw it this time. It's very quick. It shows a dark space with a hole of light, a large hole of light. And I wonder, is that the perspective of the child inside the womb? The hole is the birth canal that he will come out of. So that is the child's first view of the world. That circle of light that he goes toward, that we all go toward. I encourage you, if you watch the film, and you might have missed it, it's incredibly fast. But right before she gives birth, there's that circle of light and darkness. And it looks just like the birth canal. And right before that scene of her giving birth, there were the watery images, the woman in the water, the boy going through the door. The womb is a watery space. The baby goes through the the birth canal just as the boy went through that door underwater. He's leaving the home of her body, of his mother's body, and swimming into the light of the world. The images are not randomly compiled. There is a sense to this configuration and sequence. There is a reason and a meaning why the images are put together. And Malik may have his own meaning, and then you as a viewer will bring your own meaning into it. And we see images of the baby, close-ups of its skin. When I was watching this scene, I thought about like, I don't think I could have a baby. I'm 30. I've never had any desire to have a baby necessarily. Although when you get to the age of 30, I don't know what it is. I mean, I've never wanted to have children. I've never had any desire to get married and have a family or anything like that. And then when I turned 30, then I started to have feelings about it. Like, wow, I'm I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to have that kind of life. I'm not going to have grandchildren. And it did kind of make me sad because, you know, I love my mother and I'm never going to be a mother. It did kind of like make me really sad. I, I can't explain it. But at the same time, I don't think that I could have a baby. I think I would love it too much. I think I would suffocate it. I wouldn't be able to let him him or her go. I would be just so terrified of losing a child. I think I really would be. There's a brief image of rain dripping from the eaves of a house. It's just this little ordinary moment among many in the film, but it resonates with me. Just the other day, before I watched the film, I was outside on the front porch during a rainstorm. I've been trying to get back to nature and go outside more and stuff, especially during this pandemic. So I was out there during a rainstorm and I was watching the rain drip from the eaves and puddle on the ground. And that was a beautiful experience to me. And I wonder, would I be like this if I hadn't known grief, if I had not known loss? Would I marvel 
at these tiny moments? Would I be this grateful for what is left of my life? That's the struggle for me, to not just see what is missing and what I have lost, but to appreciate and hold and love and cherish what remains what endures, and Malik has put all of that in one film, I think. Even amid the beauty of the film, and much of the rest of the film will be just the boys and their childhood in Texas in the 1950s, a huge chunk of the film focuses on that and focuses on the different moments of their childhood. But even amid the beauty, there are these very moments, these sort of destabilizing moments of like fear and strangeness. Like at one point, there's a scene of a man on a lawn having a seizure. Also, there's a little boy in the neighborhood that It appears that his house burned down or something and he has burns all over his skull and the back of his head. And that recurs throughout the film where Jack looks at him and and is sort of um, is uneasy when he sees it. The scars are a reminder of the fire and the fire is a reminder of the dangers that lurk in life. And then later on, there's a scene with these prisoners who have been arrested and they are kind of scary. Because when you're a child, things like that are scary. There are things that invade this happy cocoon and it's not always outside of them. Sometimes it's the things inside them. It's the father and his aggression and his dissatisfaction with his life and his coldness and the way he's distant with the sons and how stern he is and violent at times. You can't can't keep the world out. When you're little, everything is heightened and you don't understand things yet. There's a scene where Mrs. O'Brien is reading Peter Rabbit to the boys. And when I saw that, I remembered growing, when I was growing up, and I loved this TV series that came on. It was set in Britain, I think. This was in the 1990s and the show was called The World of Peter Rabbit and Friends. And I always mean to rewatch it. I know the episodes are on YouTube. Mrs. O'Brien is outside with one of the boys holding him and she points to the sky and she says, that's where God lives. I like the scene where they're playing in the water. Um, They're being sort of hosed down. Mrs. O'Brien is spraying them and I remembered how I would do that in the summer. I'd run through sprinklers. Many of the images from this childhood sequence really resonate with me because growing up in the 1990s and in the rural South, I grew up in North Carolina. These kids are in Texas, but we're both in the South, right? Growing up in the 1990s, I had a childhood that was largely spent outdoors. When I got off school and came home, I'd be out with friends or not necessarily friends, but like kids from the neighborhood until the sun went down and my mom called me like she would yell for me to come home. She would be like, Caitlin, (laughs) and I would run home and we were always outside roaming and exploring. And my best memories are of those times playing with chalk on the, the road, lying in the grass, looking up at the clouds and seeing shapes in them, walking in the forest. All of that. All of that was a really big part of my childhood. In one scene, the family's having dinner. This is when you start to realize the father is very Mr. O'Brien, played by Brad Pitt, is very stern and demanding and that the boys feel afraid of him. They're uncomfortable and stiff in his presence. And he has these awkward attempts where he tries to hug them or touch them, but he still is very distant. And I think many of us saw our fathers as enigmas. I'm not sure I saw mine in that way. I had a close relationship with my dad. He wasn't cold or distant, but 
I do think that he had a lot of pain inside of him and I think I always wished that I could take it away. So there were inaccessible parts of him. There was something closed off about him that I think he shared with a lot of men. I think he kept a lot inside and hidden away, but I was a daddy's girl and I felt very loved by him and taken care of by him. And it's weird because when I think about him, it feels both very long ago and very recent. And it's hard to explain that where it's hard when a person is reduced to, to just a memory and you have to dig through those memories to try to remember the living, breathing person that they were. They're not in front of you anymore. You don't get to have conversations with them. You don't get to ask them questions. And so it's hard to remember everything. It's hard to say he was like this or he was like that. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't a saint, but he was a good father and he was a good man. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have his own inner demons or his own inner pain that he kept inside. Young Jack says in a voiceover quote, mother, make me good. Unquote. And I wonder if we kind of all have the father and the mother inside of us, whatever they represent for us. Not all of us have the stereotypical, oh, the dad was strong and the mother was nurturing. You can have very complicated mothers and fathers. Some people have really great relationships with their fathers and some have bad relationships with their mothers. But at the same time, these are the two people that created you. And if you have both of them in your life, I know not everybody does, there, I think they're can be this sense that you are torn, that there are these two parts of you that come from the mother and the father. My mom was more outgoing, more open. My dad was more shy and closed off and inside himself. And I'm much more like my dad than I've ever been like my mother. I had a more similar personality to my father. And I think for Jack, the conflict is the grace of the mother, the nature or harshness of the father. And it seems to me that the father in the end, inside of him has won out, that he has in some ways become more like his father than he did like his mother. There's this scene where Mrs. O'Brien is floating in the air. She's dancing. And I love that. Jessica Chastain in an interview said that that was very kind of spontaneous. I think she was supposed to do something else and she was in the harness and she was just kind of there bopping around and Malik was like, Jessica, that's perfect. Do that. And that's what we see in the film. I love the way that Malik was open to spontaneity and working in the moment and capturing things that happen in the moment and that were just part of life. It's such a whimsical and surreal scene, like something you'd dream about and you'd wake up from and wonder where it came from. The mother, Mrs. O'Brien, she's like an otherworldly type being to Jack. At one point, we see Mr. O'Brien at work. That made me think about my dad. He worked at a warehouse. He loaded large uh, packages and stuff. I don't know if it was a furniture place. I really don't know because it's been so many years. Um, but he would load boxes and stuff onto these trucks. He did not make a lot of money. He was working class. I grew up working class. I still am. I remember sometimes I'd I'd go into the warehouse sometimes. I was able to for whatever reason. I guess they would let the workers' kids come in sometimes. I don't know why. It was hot in there. I remember it was massive. He had this little office and I 
always wondered what he was like at work when he was away from me and my mom. Like, what did he talk about? What did he think about? I've just always wondered that. I've always wished that I could have maybe seen that side of him. The thing about Mr. O'Brien is that he wanted to be more than what he is. And that's a big part of his frustration with life is that I think he felt entitled to greatness. He felt entitled to a bigger life, to more money, to more success, to to a measure of fame or greatness. And he wanted to be a big musician, a great musician, but it didn't happen. He plays the piano in the film. I'm guessing maybe he wanted to be a classical pianist or something like that. That didn't happen. And so now he feels inadequate or, you know, life did not work out the way that he wanted it to. And as a result, Mr. O'Brien wants his kids to strive and do better than him. He wants them to be successful. And they're riding in the car one day and he says, quote, if you want to succeed, you can't be too good, unquote. So Mr. O'Brien accepts that life will be cruel. People will be ruthless. It's a very different message than Mrs. O'Brien with her goodness and her compassion. So of course these things are warring inside of Jack. It's clear that Jack is successful. Older Jack is successful. He has an expensive home and works in a modern fancy building, but his life seems very empty. And I feel like at some point he chose the direction or the path of nature instead of grace. So he chose the way of the nature. He chose the way that is more about being successful and all of that sort of empty hollow stuff instead of a way of being that would have been more fulfilling or just better would have given his life more depth I guess you could say there's this scene where Mr. O'Brien is teaching young Jack to hit he keeps telling him to hit him hit him he actually ends up hitting Jack and he falls to the ground I don't think that Mr. O'Brien is shown in a positive way and I do think there is a subtle critique in the film of the socialization of men, of male violence, of the way that men are in this world, the way that they are raised, the way that they treat the world and women and children. I don't think it's necessarily explicit, but it's there. Malik is not glorifying Mr. O'Brien, like, oh yeah, this is a great way to parent. Um, He's not celebrating the coldness, the obsession with success, the ruthlessness, the inability to be affectionate or loving, his need to dominate other people. Domination is a big part of Mr. O'Brien. He's intimidating. He's not able to connect with his sons because of his own ideas about what it means to be a man. He wants them to be tough. That is his obsession. The only time sometimes where he'll show tenderness is with music. He likes to play the piano and RL will sometimes accompany him on guitar. They play music together and that seems to be a way that they connect. There's a scene where at the pool one day this boy drowns and they they get him out of the water. They're trying to save him. It's another moment when something very frightening enters their tranquil lives. None of us are protected. I remember my mom telling me that her brother almost drowned when they were little. My uncle died in 2009, my mother's brother. And so when I saw this scene of the drowning and I thought about that story my mom told me, I thought about how he evaded death 
that day only to meet it in 2009 when he did pass away unexpectedly and shockingly. And of course, I think about my own life. I think about how I thought we were safe, me, my mom, and dad, just living our life together. We'd sometimes call ourselves the Three Musketeers as a joke. We were so close that I felt our hearts and bodies were one, and I still feel that way, but we weren't safe. Death came anyways. It did not stop and it did not spare us. And then at one point, Young Jack in a voiceover says, quote, where were you? You let a boy die, unquote. I feel like when he sees that little boy drown, that is really his first big confrontation with death. Because at that time, his brother R.L. is still alive. He hasn't died. He doesn't die until 10 years later. And then he says, why should I be good if you aren't? And he's talking to God. I think at a young age, he probably lost his faith, or maybe he never had it the way his mother did. And he sees this boy die. He sees all these things and he's like, you're not good. Look at all the terrible things that happened. Look at my dad who is abusive towards me. He doesn't feel like the world is a good place. He doesn't see the goodness the way that Mrs. O'Brien does. He sees the ugliness, the brutality, the darker, the darker aspects of life. And I think it causes him to lose his faith at a very young age. I think you see it a bit with his interactions with women too. He loves his mother. He's very soft and sensitive towards his mother. I think when it comes to women, he's more voyeuristic or it was weird to me his interactions like the way he would watch the little girl at school or especially with the single woman in his neighborhood where he went in and took like a camisole or one of her gowns or slips and I mean he broke into her house basically and invaded her private space, her privacy. And I was very unsettled by that part of the film. It's a very long section later on in the film of him and it feels like he crosses a line there and I'll talk about it more in in a few moments but I'm just saying there's this darkness about Jack and I do think that it comes more from his father for sure and also that he loses his faith at an early age and I think he is searching for answers or searching for understanding of the world and he can't find it and it leaves him I I think it leaves him in a lot of pain as a result he says why does he hurt us our father his relationship with his father is very very important it takes up a good part of the film these interactions with Mr. O'Brien from being hit by him to his father doing things like telling them to sit a certain way and have certain posture. He's a very suffocating force in the film, telling the boys how to sit and what to do. You know, Mr. O'Brien, when he's around, he fills the space with his presence. He suffocates them. You know, it's often said that mothers suffocate or smother their children, but I think in this film, the father is very oppressive and he overwhelms everything. There's no escape from him, from his surveillance of the sons, his demands of what they should do and how they should sit and what they can say. His control is ugly. The violence of the father is central to the boy's life. He takes out his aggression on the children. He dominates them. Mrs. O'Brien is there, but she's passive, submissive, silent. What power does she really have? You know, seeing these scenes, it made me more thankful for the father that I had. At one point, R.L. tells Mr. O'Brien to be quiet. They're at the dinner table or something, and he lunges at him and grabs him and then Mrs. O'Brien picks up the youngest son and 
in her arms. She's completely helpless to stop it. But it's, she is furious. It's a rare moment of fury for Mrs. O'Brien. And later on, when it's just her and Mr. O'Brien, she lashes out at him, hits at him, and that's when he like subdues her physically. It's such an intense moment and it's a reminder I think of the violence that can live inside the home and inside the family and I think Jack is shaped by that violence. It stays with him and it affects him deeply and the children are much happier when Mr. O'Brien is not there. He goes on a trip and while he's gone they have such a sense of freedom because this suffocation is gone. This domination and domineering presence is gone and he's so incredibly different from Mrs. O'Brien. Again I think it shows you like male and female socialization and it's something that's still at work today the way boys are raised and the way girls are raised and it's something that's even manifesting itself during the COVID-19 pandemic. I just read an article in the Guardian that said men are much likely to not wear masks and to not do things that would help collectively in society and I wasn't surprised at all because from an early age girls are taught to put other people first, to put other people before themselves, to consider the way that their actions affect other people. We're taught to be obsessed and hyper vigilant of the way that we affect other people and our interactions with other people. We're taught to not be selfish, to consider others and put others before us, often at our own expense. I'm not saying that this socialization is great. You know, it can be very damaging to girls and it can be a big part of our lives where we're not allowed to get angry, we're not allowed to be upset, we're not allowed to to do certain things because we're supposed to always put other people first. But the way that that manifests with this pandemic is that women are going to be more likely to wear the masks, to social distance, to think about the way their actions impact other people. That does not mean that all women are doing that. There are certainly women going to the restaurants and the bars and being very close to people without a mask. It's not a hard and fast rule. But I'm not surprised that studies or data show this. Men are raised in a very different way. Boys are raised um, to think only of themselves. They're not raised in the same way to think about the people around them and the impact that they have on other people. They're not raised to consider the feelings of other people the way girls are. So it's just, it's interesting how I kind of see Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien as sort of embodying that kind of thing, where the mother is very nurturing and compassionate and kind and selfless, and then the father is domineering, violent. And of course, he has a bigger impact on Jack and a more damaging effect on Jack, I think. You know, Jack is getting these very mixed messages, right? He's getting his father who says, well, you shouldn't be too good if you want to succeed. And then you've got Mrs. O'Brien saying, quote, help each other, love everyone, every leaf, every ray of light, forgive, unquote. Like that's, that's very contradictory for a person to get those two messages. So on the one hand, it's the goodness of Mrs. O'Brien. And then on the other hand, it's the the selfishness, the violence of Mr. O'Brien. And they're clashing there. They're clashing in the film as well. And you see that in Jack when he breaks into the woman's home later on. She's single. She lives alone. It's a very long sequence. And I think it's because Jack is crossing a line and it represents a major invasion on his part of a woman's life and privacy. It indicates something bad, quote unquote, 
in Jack, a darker force that he gives into and a darker force that comes from his father, his relationship with his father, I think. And also just him being a boy, being raised a certain way, raised to like violence and to do whatever you want. And women are objects and women are things for you to look at. They're not human beings in their own right. And of course, Mrs. O'Brien is it's sort of like the Madonna whore thing where I think Mrs. O'Brien is like a Madonna. She is uh, saintly and perfect and otherworldly, right? So she's not fully human either. He doesn't necessarily see women as human. They're always either idealized the way that Mrs. O'Brien is or they are there for him to invade, right? And to do what he wants to. He steals a slip, but then he later gets rid of it. He throws it in the river. He does seem scared of what he's done. He knows it's wrong, but he did it anyway. And when he sees his mother, he feels ashamed of it. He doesn't want her to look at him. And then he also can't tell her what he did. This distance starts between him and Mrs. O'Brien as he get as he gets older and becomes, I guess, a man, you could say. He can no longer communicate with his mother in the same way. He even watches his mom at one point. I don't know if y'all noticed that, but she's in her room. She has like a slip or a gown on of some kind. And he's like standing there at the door watching her. He's sort of become a voyeur in some ways. We see in the film how Jack progressively gets these darker faults. And sometimes he acts on them like when he goes into the woman's house. Sometimes he doesn't. At one point he says to Mr. O'Brien, you'd like to kill me. He says that. There's just this distance between them. There's a scene where Mr. O'Brien is working underneath a car and it's like jacked up so that he can be underneath it. I don't know what the word for that thing would be. Like I know there's a word for it, but I don't know. And young Jack, he comes along and it seemed to me for a second he kind of considers moving the Jack or moving what holds the car up. And of course it would fall and it would crush his father. And he just seems like he is considering it in that moment. And then the voiceover says, please let him die. He hates his father. I mean, he hates him and he's very angry. But the film doesn't necessarily make Mr. O'Brien into this one-dimensional monster. Mr. O'Brien can't handle his own mediocrity, his own ordinariness. I mean, I know that's not really a word. He never did anything great. He didn't become a great musician. He's just a regular man who goes to a job that he hates and feels like his life has passed him by. I'm nothing, he says in the first voiceover by him in the film. And it did make me think of my dad. You know, he ended up working at a warehouse. Um, That was not his dream job or what he loved to do. He didn't get to go to college. I did go to college. Of course, he was not alive to see me go to college and to see me graduate because he died when I was in high school. He didn't get to do the things he wanted to do in life, but he was a good provider and he took care of me and my mom. You know, what dreams do our parents give up to have us? I mean, the same with my mom. She worked at a factory. Do we ever think about that? Like, what dreams did my father have that he never realized? What did that make him feel that he didn't get to do those things? Did he think he was a failure 
I'm always haunted by the thought that he didn't know how much he was loved, or worse yet, that that love wasn't enough, just as any love that I receive isn't enough to make me stop hating myself. We can be loved and know that we're loved and still struggle and still feel those demons inside. I feel like I have a lot of demons. Maybe I see some of myself in Jack, actually, because I feel like I have that darker thing in me and those demons and, you know, he is loved. Jack has a lot of love from his mother, just like I have a lot of love from my mother, and yet it's still not enough. I still struggle with so much self-hatred, with feeling like I'm a failure, like I'm nothing, and it affects every part of my life. It affects every moment of my life feeling that way. I don't know how to fight it. I don't know how to get rid of it, and so sometimes love is not enough, and that's a hard thing to admit. Eventually, Mr. O'Brien has to leave his job. Um, The plant's shutting down, and he's given a choice either to not have a job or to go to a different position that he really doesn't want. And so it seems like he chose to go to the new position and they're going to have to move. So they're going to have to leave their house. And there's this interesting part in the voiceover where young Jack says, quote, father, mother, always you wrestle inside me, unquote. And he tells his father at one time, quote, I'm more like you than her, unquote. He knows that he's like his father. He knows it. And because of the father's uh, job change, the family has to move from their house. The boys cry. They don't want to leave. The film is really about this one part of their lives when they lived in that house. Um, We don't see them at any other time in their lives. It's only that part. That is the part that must have the most meaning to Jack. It must be a part of his life that he thinks a lot about when they were living in that house together and things were maybe idyllic or sort of like an Eden, even with the the difficulties with his father. And I feel like that is just a particular time in his life that he thinks back on, at least for this, this film. And I think we're all kind of like that, where we have certain sections of our life that we go back to and that the memories are strongest. Mrs. O'Brien says, quote, the only way to be happy is to love. Unless you love, your life will flash by. Do good to them. Wonder, hope, unquote. And as we hear that, we see Mrs. O'Brien in the 60s after R.L.'s death and she's walking through the forest and there are the trees. The trees recur throughout the film and she's grieving for her dead son and yet she's also trying to hold on to her faith and to find some kind of meaning in the suffering and I feel like maybe there are like two types of people in the world the ones who can find the meaning in their suffering and then the people who can't and I feel like Jack is maybe the latter and so am I where we don't have faith we don't have religion we can't find any meaning in that suffering and so we just flail about and drift and search and we never really find what we're looking for and I think Mrs. O'Brien she will have her faith and that will see her through what she is experiencing we see older Jack back in the desert the Sean Penn um, playing him he walks through this random door frame that's in the middle of nowhere and then we're back to the cosmic we see the sun the planets the death of the world is this the death of the world I think it is and I still remember reading years ago about how like the earth was going to be destroyed like in five billion years or so many billion years like the sun is going to destroy us and I still remember how terrifying it was to learn that and I thought of that when I saw this sequence because I feel like that's what we're seeing is the death of the world. There's this flash, it seems like, and are we in eternity? 
is that where we are next? We see these children with candles. We see Jack in the desert and he's seeing his younger self. There's older Jack and younger Jack together. And then we see people on a beach. It's all the people from Jack's childhood. Older Jack is reunited with his mother and father as he knew them when he was a boy, not their older selves. Older Jack holds young RL and Mr. O'Brien also holds RL too. We never see RL as any other age. He's always young. And um, Mrs. O'Brien, she sees R.L. and she puts her hands on his face and she cries. This must be Jack's idea of heaven, I think. Then there is just Mrs. O'Brien with R.L. and older Jack at what looks like these salt flats, but is most likely meant to be seen as a heavenly space of some kind. Mother and son are are reunited. And isn't that what we all want and hope for, that we will be with our loved ones again, we will see them, that the emptiness will be filled, the grief will give way, and we will touch those that we've lost and hold them in our arms. The dead won't just be in our dreams anymore, they will stand before us, solid, flesh and blood, the memory of them replaced with actual matter. All the years of living without them will end. It's a comforting idea that that is what awaits us at the end because it would mean that as we get older, we're not moving farther away from them. We're actually walking towards them in the direction of a reunion. But we're not promised that. That is not a fact of life. We don't know that at the end of all this, that that is actually going to happen. And so with each year, I do feel like I'm farther and farther from my father and from my childhood and from that life that I long for. This film gives us a gift, I think. The gift of imagining such a reunion and for just that time on the screen we feel it. And at one point, Mrs. O'Brien says, quote, I give him to you. I give you my son, unquote. And there's this woman with her and this white light. And I'm not sure how to interpret this. Is this Mrs. O'Brien letting go of RL? Is this Mrs. O'Brien coming to some kind of peace about the death of her son and being able to, to live? I don't know. I don't know what that means that she gives her son to God. I mean, I think she's speaking to God in these voiceovers. I don't know, but that's the mystery of the film. You don't necessarily have to have meaning for every single thing that you see or make sense out of every single thing that you see. Somebody else may see this scene and and think something differently from me, and it may hit them a certain way. I saw it as maybe a woman accepting the loss and able to let go of the child that she's lost. And perhaps she believes that if she gives her son to God, that he will he will be in heaven or something like that. But then there's this field of sunflowers. And we're back at Older Jack at his workplace with these tall buildings that are mirroring the cloudy sky. And I always feel like, is this whole film just Jack's reverie? Is this just a reverie he's having? A daydream? Is this just all of his memories and maybe he's thinking about the universe and the dinosaurs like are we just in his mind just seeing all the random things that somebody would see in their mind on one day of their life or something I don't know it's a mystery I am open to anything with this film and what I love is that anybody everybody else who watches it will have their own interpretation or they'll bring their own memories to it their own experiences they'll see something that I'm 
missed or they'll put pieces together that I didn't think to put together. There doesn't have to be some big meaning or big answer. The film is not an answer. It's not giving any answers. We see a bridge and then we see that light, that abstract light in the dark again, the Lumia. So we've gone from the birth of the world to the death of it. We've seen the cosmos and we've seen one family in Texas. The thing is, is that the credits roll after this, but it seems impossible that what we watched was simply a film. It must be more than that. It is more than that. This film is a prayer. It's a prayer put out into the world for us to experience and to live. I watch it, but I also live it. I live everything about this film. The music has stayed in my head for days and even years back when I saw it almost a decade ago. A decade ago. The credits roll and the film seems to end, but it never ends. There, The film never stops. It keeps going. It keeps replaying inside of you, inside of the viewer, and everything that you take from it. It was a privilege to see this film. It was a privilege to rewatch it and to talk about it. It's a gift that we have been given by Terrence Malick. And I truly believe that. And as I've gone through this experience and this journey, I almost feel like I went through a journey with this film. And that's what I'm trying to share with you is that journey I went on. I feel like I've come to know myself better. I feel like I've come to know the film better. I feel like... I have come to some revelations about myself and my own life and my own relationship with my father and my own experience of grief. And this is what a film can do. This is the possibility of cinema and what it can give us. To me, this is one of the greatest films ever made. Not a lot tops it for me, honestly. I think I can honestly say that this is a top, top film for me. It it was always a top film for me, but to revisit it, to re-enter it, to experience it again, right at the time when I needed it most, when I'm dealing with my own grief and my own heartache and my own struggles, you know, with my father's death and it being 14 years and also dealing with a pandemic and dealing with all the other things that come with life. And then to have this film, to experience it again and go on a journey like this, it's been very powerful for me and I hope that this episode was helpful. I wasn't trying to explain the film, wasn't trying to dissect it or pick it apart. This is just my interpretation of images. These are my feelings and these are memories that I have while watching the film and I hope that was valuable to any of you who listened to the entire episode. I really do appreciate it. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your support. You make the podcast possible. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Music